Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, what are you reading these days? I love to read dorky social studies stuff all the time. I know. You know, I'm reading two books. One is a little longer and more of a commitment than I thought. I'm reading the big Alexander Hamilton book. I, you know, just gotten back into the musical lately. I'm like, I should read the book. It is a lot of details about his life. So that's one. I try to read books that I can recommend to my elementary social studies candidates. And recently I've been reading a book called Sylvia Naki. Oh, yeah? What's that about? It's really good. So it's a book about Sylvia Mendez, who we've talked about in previous episodes of our podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We when we had our uh, Mexican-American histories episode, her case went to the Supreme Court because she was being discriminated based on her ethnicity and language. And it's kind of was a good contrast to understanding Brown versus Board and how that Mexican-Americans were treated differently. But the case is also about Aki, who is a young girl in the book whose family was Japanese-American, and they were taken to a Japanese internment camp during World War II. And so it's this story that kind of goes back and forth between their lives because they went and lived in the house. It's incredible. It's uh, upper elementary, probably could read it, but I highly recommend it. Sylvia and Aki, it's awesome. Okay, I will put that on the list. It's interesting that you talk about Japanese internment. So there's a couple podcasts that I've listened to recently that I think are just phenomenal that actually do talk about Japanese internment. Uh, More Perfect, which if you haven't listened to More Perfect yet, it's about major Supreme Court decisions. They did this amazing episode on the American Pendulum, and it does talk about Japanese internment. Stuff You Missed in History, of course, did a couple episodes. And for those who really enjoy 99% Invisible. There's a, this amazing episode uh, called Manzanar, which is like really tackling memory in where how uh, this group of these kids, this is during like the Vietnam, Vietnam protests. They had always heard about the camps that their parents talked about these camps. but They didn't really know what the heck they meant. And so they're looking to do a protest and then they want to do it at the camps. And they found out this whole history of these camps that they never had never heard about. And it was the Japanese internment camps. It's an amazing episode, and so I do recommend folks who you can also listen to these podcasts uh, as well as read that tremendous book you mentioned earlier. Social studies teachers, we have to be lifelong learners and keep learning more about topics. I remember in high school, uh, I was in the APUS, and we we didn't cover it. Or if we did, it got like, you know, you read it, and then that was just kind of it. In like K-12, I'm fairly certain that's all I got, which seems to be a shame. If only there was someone who can come and chat with us about, I don't know. Asian American histories, yeah. Yeah. We have a guest today. Surprise, surprise. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast Noreen Nassim Rodriguez. Hi, thanks for having me today. Thank you for joining us. Noreen, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. I was a bilingual elementary teacher in Austin, Texas for nine years. And I taught students who were native English speakers, students who were native Spanish speakers and everything in between in a range of elementary grades. So I've taught first, second, fourth and fifth grades. 
and dabbled briefly in middle school and ran right back to elementary school. And from there, I started getting more involved with developing more culturally relevant curriculum. And that led me to kind of shift my interests from bilingual education to social studies education. And so now I am a teacher educator and an assistant professor of elementary social studies at Iowa State University. Can you tell us a little bit why culturally relevant uh, teaching is so important to you? There is one story that I, I usually cite as the moment when I realized how disconnected I felt from American history when I was in school. And that was my 10th grade American history teacher who pretty randomly asked me and no one else in my class, Noreen, where are your people from? And, oh, no. and so yeah, I know it's terrible. Um, and that inspired a range of emotions, but also just made it really clear that this class wasn't for me. I wasn't seen as someone who belonged here in the first place. So I'm, I, I basically just wrote off American history from that point on. And when I teach future elementary teachers in social studies methods. Now I really try to emphasize the fact that so many of us are excluded from the, the textbook, you know, and when my students tell me that they always found it boring, I'm not surprised by that because so did I. I felt no connection to it either. And it wasn't until I started learning, honestly, about Tejano history when I was a fourth grade teacher in Texas and I was participating in the Tejano history curriculum project and we were kind of creating curriculum from scratch based on the first ever Tejano monument on the Capitol state grounds. So Texas, formerly a part of Mexico, had never had a monument on the Capitol grounds that recognized the Mexican origin folks who had lived in Texas when it became an independent country and then ultimately part of the United States. Those histories were never recognized and, and there were already 42 statues at the time. Once I started delving into that and realizing how powerful that was, particularly for my bilingual students, I got hooked. And that's, I think, when my interest in American history finally became personal. And interestingly, when I went to graduate school, that's when I finally realized after, I think, 23 years of education or something ridiculous like that, that I had never actually learned my own history. And I am Asian American. My father is Pakistani and my mother is Filipina. And I had never in school learned about Pakistani Americans, Filipina Americans. I had never even learned about the laws that allowed them to come to the United States. And I found that deeply troubling. And once I started to learn about Asian American histories, I became obsessed. And so now I finally found some areas of history that, you know, someone who hated American history for years and years and years, I finally become super interested in it because it's meaningful to me. And oftentimes when I've done lessons that are culturally relevant, whether it's to 10-year-olds or to 20-year-olds, when you see the sparkle in someone's eye because they see someone that looks like them, they, they're learning about a story that reminds them of someone that they've known or that, that just is interesting to them on some sort of level. I think that's magical. And I didn't get that kind of magic when I was in school. And so I'm determined to make sure that kids have it and that future teachers have that too. So that Tejano monument experiment was kind of like your radioactive spider bite. And your goal is to create those moments to uh, infect other students with love of history. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, because I think up until that point, I hadn't realized how much it can change a child's level of interest when history is so much more meaningful to them. Because full disclosure, I used the textbook when I was an elementary teacher because I had never paid attention in, in U.S. history. So I, I needed that to kind of guide me through the French and Indian War and, and stuff that I had just kind of glossed over when I was in school. And then I had always used historical fiction and that was the part that I enjoyed. And then once we started doing the Tejano history and there was no historical fiction, that's when we started using a lot more primary sources. And my understandings of how you can teach history really started to broaden. 
one of the things that just jumped out from you sharing your story, Noreen, is how similar it was to Maribel Santiago's story when she was on the podcast. Because she had very similar experiences by feeling her history was not well represented in school. And apparently what sometimes comes out of that is we just get really awesome scholars who are like, okay, we're going to fix this. And so a credit to a lot of those um, people working in social studies education who are working to ensure that we represent different histories that are often are included and broaden and understand how students relate to those histories. And it seems so evident today when some people cannot see the value in immigrants from other countries to see like our whole history is filled with people from all over the world who've made a big difference. But often, if you're a person of color, your history doesn't make it into the textbooks. Exactly. Exactly. So Noreen, you recently been published in the Social Studies in the Young Learner from NCSS, and your uh, article was titled, But They Didn't Do Nothing Wrong, Teaching the Japanese American Incarceration. Congratulations on being published. Thank you so much. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your about your article? Sure. Well, this comes from my dissertation study where I studied three Asian American teachers and how they taught Asian American history for the first time. And this article that's in Social Studies and the Young Learner focuses on two of those teachers and particularly upon the topic of Japanese American incarceration. And I'm really proud of this article because as far as I can tell, after looking through all the previous publications regarding this topic, this is the first time someone's actually used the term incarceration to describe what happened to 120,000 Japanese Mm -hmm. and Japanese Americans during World War II. So in terms of precision and accuracy and honoring those awful, traumatic, horrible histories, that's really important. And I think that's perhaps the thing I'm proudest of. But I delve into how these two teachers approached the teaching of Japanese American incarceration, some of the common misconceptions that people have about incarceration, and some of the things that they struggled with. Because like I said, it was their first time doing this, and so it's not as if everything went perfectly and was easy for them. Noreen, can you tell us, so you do often see the term internment. Can you tell us the difference between internment and incarceration and why incarceration is a more accurate and better term to use? Sure. So there is a phenomenal article by a historian named Roger Daniels that delves into a lot of the details of this distinction. And you can find that online. It's it's free to the public. It's great. It's called Words Do Matter. But just as a quick summary of the work that he's gone into, Internment is something that's existed since the War of 1812. It's protected by the Geneva Conventions, and it applies to any foreign national of a country with which we're at war. But when we think about the Japanese and Japanese Americans who were incarcerated after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens, and they were forced to leave their homes. Some of them had their property seized. They were removed to camps in the desert, in the mountains, without any sense of when they would come back, surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards. That's not internment. And in fact, many of the actual internment camps at the time were far better than the camps in which Japanese and Japanese Americans were living during World War II. So when we call it internment, we're using a euphemism, we're softening it. It's interesting because FDR actually referred to to the camps where Japanese and Japanese Japanese Americans were imprisoned as concentration camps. But then once we realized the horror of the concentration camps in Europe to refer to what happened in the United States, that domestically it doesn't even compare. So that's part of why we moved away from that usage since then. But to use internment really doesn't fully grasp what happened to them. Also, people use terms like relocation to describe it. No, that was forcible removal. I mean, it was either you leave your home and everything that you have 
and take only what you can carry or you go to jail. It's not like you were given a particular day when you could gather your things casually and all the stuff that you wanted. No, I mean, none of none of that ease was a part of it. And so when we say things like internment and relocation, we're just softening something that was awful. And we have a bad tendency, especially with textbooks, to do that in histories, to try to wash away or whitewash what happened as a way to, I don't know what it is, psychologically make people feel like our past is better than it is, as opposed to understanding the cruelty that existed and wanting to fix that, which I think should be an aim of the social studies. So what else did you talk about in your article? What did you learn from these teachers? Well, it's funny that you you mentioned what you just did, because after one of one of the teachers taught this lesson, one of his students said, well, we, we don't talk about this because we don't want to look like the bad guys. So this is in a fifth grade class. And this teacher really wanted to disrupt the traditional narrative of Japanese American incarceration. And so typically when we think about how this is attended to in textbooks, and it generally isn't taught in elementary, it's typically something that you would only see in secondary classrooms and in secondary history textbooks. They just begin with this idea that Pearl Harbor was bombed and there were Japanese and Japanese Americans in the United States and along the West Coast, they were rounded up. What this teacher, whose pseudonym is Kumar, did instead was he went back to Japanese immigration from Japan to the United States. He talked about how the Japanese introduced irrigation methods that transformed the West Coast into an agricultural center. They did these amazing things and made all these contributions to American society And then after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, they were suddenly seen as the enemy. And so he really tried to establish the shift in attitudes that occurred and in so doing really get at the heart of the racism that was behind incarceration. So that was really interesting. And ultimately, he had tried to make connections between what was happening back then to Japanese American communities, to what is happening to Muslim and perceived as Muslim communities today. That was his ultimate goal, so that they connect the past to the present. And he discovered that his students just didn't have enough of an understanding of basically the the post 9-11 climate, Islamophobia. They just didn't know about it, enough of that to really articulate those connections. So that was part of his struggle in trying to, to make sense of, of how what happened to Japanese Americans in the 1940s is something that we need to learn from. So that was something that he struggled with. The other classroom teacher that I talk about in the article, her name is Heidi, and she was a second grade teacher. And in the article, there's several classroom vignettes where where I highlight the conversations that she's having with her students as they read this book called The Bracelet. That's about a young girl and her family as they're on their way to a camp. And it's really powerful, some of the things that the kids are saying, because they're realizing that this family is being discriminated against and taken from their homes simply because of how they look. What were the the takeaways from some of those second graders? Because I know that we had talked about how this wasn't often talked about in elementary school. One of the things that I found most fascinating about the second grade class in particular was it was at 100% students of color. And there were several moments as they were reading this book and, and other books related to Japanese incarceration that I just thought were super profound. There was one point where the teacher was reviewing the book the second day that they were reading it. And as the students are pointing to this picture of the Japanese, the Japanese American girl whose name was Emmy, and she's hugging a white friend as she's getting ready to leave her home and go off to this camp. And she has no idea when she's going to ever see her friend again. They said, well, and they point to the white girl and they say she looks normal and the other girl has to leave because she's different, meaning that the Japanese American girl has to leave because she is different from the white girl. And the teacher paused and she said, okay, wait, wait, wait. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we're all different? 
because again, this is 100% students of color and an Asian American teacher leading the discussion. So it was fascinating to me that in second grade, all these students of color have already formed white normativity in their minds. No one said that explicitly to them. This is a school where there's a lot of culturally diverse celebrations, literature involved in the classrooms. I mean, it's it's the kind of model that you would want to see in a public school setting, but these kids have still viewed white as norm. When they think about what it means to be citizen, it's a normative conception of whiteness. So that was stunning to me. And it's sad to think that these kids in second grade were already learning that. Depressing. Yeah, it just goes to show the importance of teaching this history, like being feeling like you're reflective within the, the curriculum that, that you're or the history that you're learning. Another interesting moment that I'll mention is before Heidi shared the children's literature with her students, she gave them a bunch of primary sources. And it's a collection that you can find on the Library of Congress. It's free. And it's a primary source set of different camps from the 1940s. And she just spread all the pictures out. She did what she called a picture flood. And she just wanted her students to look at them and to start forming questions. And she stood by, recorded, didn't answer any questions, didn't comment at all. It was all student student conversation. And she heard them arguing about the race of the people that were getting on the buses and the race of the people that were behind the barbed wire in these camps. And they were arguing, they're black, no, they're white, no, they're black, no, they're white. And then one of them said, it's kind of like... Like Miss, and and they're referring to the teacher, they look kind of like her. And Heidi was Chinese American. And as they're having these conversations about what it means to be Japanese American or Japanese, oftentimes they would ask her or she would clarify for them her own identity as an Asian American because it was something that they had never had to wrestle with before. They understood what it meant to be white. They understood what it meant to be black. But what is this Asian thing? What does it mean to be Japanese American? How is that different from Asian American? And what are you again, miss? So constantly having these conversations. And, and I was in her classroom for six months. And the, from the first time I was there to the last time I was there, she was still having to clarify, my parents are born in China. I was born in America. I am Chinese American. I'm Chinese and I'm American. And just constantly reiterating that to them. But how many students get that? And obviously we still see today often these examples of xenophobia where people are committing hate crimes because they see a person in the street that is not white and therefore they're perceived to be foreign, not from here. They need to go back to where they came from. I'm guessing those folks didn't have a lot of conversations like Heidi was having with her students. Can you shed a little light on how we can approach Asian American histories in general? My dissertation focused mostly on just the ways that these three Asian American teachers taught Asian American histories drawing from their own identities and experiences. They all taught Japanese American incarceration, and then two of them also taught immigration. But I've also been working on developing Asian American history curriculum for school districts from pre-K through eighth grade. I've worked on this stuff beyond my dissertation research in classrooms. And as I've done professional development workshops, one of the things that has always come up is I never learned this. And it's really hard to teach what you don't know. Luckily, there's a lot of resources out there now. But a lot of the, the resources, lesson plans, the things that you would be able to find online isn't targeted for young learners. So I think it's important to do a couple things. I think we need to make sure in terms of teaching Asian American history that we go beyond the Chinese in the 1800s and the Japanese during World War II. That's incredibly important because that has that gives us no context for how diverse the Asian American community is today. If we think about the top six 
largest Asian American groups in the United States today. It is, and I'm not doing these in order of largest population. I'm just giving you all six in, in our random order. It's Chinese, Vietnamese, Indian, Filipino, Korean, and Japanese. If students only learn about the Chinese in the 1800s and Japanese in the 1940s, they have no context for any of those other groups, much less Nepalese or Burmese refugees that might be in their neighborhood or folks that they know came here from Pakistan or Afghanistan. Like, how would they know any of these things? Because they've never learned about this. And so I think having conversations about immigration post Ellis Island is a huge starting point. We just need to talk about the fact that not until 1965 was immigration accessible to people on any sort of reasonable scale, not just from Asia, but also from Central and South America and Africa. And typically by the time we get to 1965 in history classes, we go through all of that real quick. So that's part of the problem. We just don't have a sense of how the United States became as diverse as it is and how that was facilitated by a lot of things. So coming to think of this idea of the model minority, right? And it's something that you see on TV a lot. And when I think about media studies, there are even Disney shows aimed at young children where there's a nerdy Indian American kid. So it's a trope that is used even in children's programming. And Michael, you're a father. I don't know if you watched Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood already. You probably will soon. Not yet. It's it's the reboot of, of Mr. Rogers, except it's focused on the tiger and it's all animated. It's great. But the doctor is identifiably South Asian and British. But there's these tropes of Asians as the model minority, as doctors, as engineers throughout the media. And in the absence of learning about them in school, this is the kind of stuff that kids are going to absorb. But then we don't think about the fact that there are targeted ways in which people from South Asia are allowed access to U.S. immigration through the tech sector. And that's why so many people in Silicon Valley are South Asian American, but we never learn about that. So I think just making sure that we do a better job of teaching immigration in general will also make sure that we include these Asian American stories and experiences. But another thing that I think is super important for teachers to think about if they want to learn how to teach this stuff strategically is to think about racial coalitions and alliances. If nothing else, if race otherwise does not come up in an elementary classroom, it comes up in terms of Martin Luther King Jr., right? We know that kids are going to learn about him and Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement typically constrained to the 1960s. Well, that movement inspired a lot of other people, too. So we know that that led to the Chicano movement, to the American Indian movement, but it also led to yellow power. And we never hear about the Asian American movement in schools. We never learn about school segregation as it also affected Chinese American girls, which it did. So I think finding ways to take stuff that teachers are already addressing in terms of race and segregation social movements, and just making sure that we're expanding how we teach that by including Asian American voices, communities, not just a single person, but going beyond that to look at ways that perhaps the Black Power movement influenced Yellow Power. In the book, Separate is Never Equal, Sylvia Mendez and Her Family's Fight for Desegregation, that was a book that was recommended by Maribel Santiago to talk about Mexican-American histories and court cases. And the thing I love about it is there's this one page where it talked about the amicus briefs Um, that were filed to the support from other groups. And you have this diversity of groups who also, you know, put in uh, letters supporting the Mendez's cause because their groups are also affected by discrimination. And so that's a point when I work with elementary social studies teachers that we talk about, well, what are the stories of all these groups, 
also. And so it allowed you to kind of talk about similarities and differences in segregation. And I could see how that also could apply to immigration and other related issues. Dr. Rodriguez, if I wanted to change my curriculum and do a better job of teaching Asian American histories in my classroom tomorrow, what advice would you give me? For any teacher, regardless of grade, there are a couple adult level resources that are really easy to read and engaging that would give you a foundational knowledge of Asian American history over several centuries. And the most recent one is called The Making of Asian America by Erica Lee. And it's very, very easy to read has won awards. It's great. And then the other one is more of a classic, and it's Strangers from a Different Shore by the historian Ronald Takaki. And again, they're both very readable, lots of vignettes about individuals and communities. So you have, you walk away with a lot of stories and a, and a sense of how this affected people. So I'd recommend those resources at an adult level. You've talked a little bit about making curriculum. Is there any way that we could find that curriculum online? Some of the stuff that I've compiled myself along with work that other people have done and I've compiled it by ethnic group and time period on my website, which is nasimrdz.com, N-A-S-E-E-M-R-D-Z.com. And then I also have a collection on that website, although there's many, many other books that I just haven't gotten around to updating it with yet. And I think one of the easiest avenues for teaching Asian American history in elementary and middle school classrooms is children's literature. So Dan mentioned Sylvia and Aki. That's a book that I've seen used in second grade and up, but there's also a lot of great picture books that talk about the struggles that Chinese immigrants had after exclusion when they had to go through Angel Island. So there's a book called Landed and another one called Paper Sun. Both of those are historical fiction picture books that would pair really nicely with a nonfiction book by Russell Friedman called Angel Island. So to use those side by side, you get primary sources and that more traditional story format that often is very palatable to first and second graders. There are a ton of books about Japanese American incarceration. I would say in terms of Asian American historical content that you can find in picture books, that would give you a wide range of resources. And when I was a fifth grade teacher, we would do book clubs. And so I would have students read in groups of two, three, or four. And you can find stuff in such a great range of reading levels, all the way from first grade to middle or high school level. So there's there's a lot of really, really great stuff that's come out around those topics. And almost all of it is from the perspectives of incarcerated youth. And many of those books have also importantly been written by cultural insiders, so folks whose family members were in the camps. So they just have this richness of perspective and and authenticity and accuracy that I think is super important. There's a lot of other books, and, and again, you can find those online, but I would also recommend that when teaching Asian American histories, try to do it through Asian American voices and be really cognizant of whether or not the person telling the story has done their research if they are not a cultural insider. There may be some publications coming out in the next several months related to this. I just did a content analysis of Asian American children's literature, but one of the things that we found was when children's literature about Asian Americans is authored by non-Asian Americans, sometimes you do see a lot of stereotypes coming up and things that are not necessarily authentic to the culture that's being depicted. And if you only tell that single story about that particular group, your students could walk away with these stereotypes and inaccuracies that are never addressed again. We are looking forward to that article too. And when it's published, please let us know and we will add it to our show notes so that you can reference all this. We will get all of these uh, stories that you mentioned in the show notes and any additional um, recommendations that you have. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and helping us think about how to better teach Asian American history so that we can have a more just future. I look forward to changing the world. Thanks for the invitation. (laughs) Noreen, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I have my personal website. It is 
www.nasimrdz.com. And I have lesson plans housed there, uh, recommended recommendations for children's literature, both for Asian American histories and Latinx histories. And there's also some goodies for folks that are in graduate school, too. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Rodriguez, for joining us today. And we definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, hit us up at Visions of Ed. And make sure if you haven't already subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Now you can talk, Violet. Now you can talk, Violet. And I'm at 42. Think, hold on. That's my thing, right? <laughs> yeah.